Welcome again to Astronomy Daily with Steve Dunkley and Hallie. Astronomy Daily, the podcast, with your host, Steve Dunkley. And straight into it, welcome to our digital reporter, Hallie. How's life in the ether, Hallie? You know, life in the fastest lane possible. Everything all at once, all the time, as usual. Oh, that sounds very confusing, Hallie. Slowing down to chat with you is hard work, Steve. Lucky you are my favorite human. Well, we've got some work to do as well, Hallie. I know. Did you remind everyone about the newsletter? Well, I haven't got to it yet. We've just started the show. See what I mean? I'll do it. Oh, right, I then take it away. If you're listening now, then you're probably interested in astronomy, space and space science, developments in space technologies and Steve's favorite stuff, rockets and asteroids. He's such a big kid. Everything you need can land in your inbox daily in the Astronomy Daily Newsletter. Tell them how, Steve. Oh, okay. Just visit bytes.com, that's B-I-T-E-S-Z.com or spacenuts.io and pop your email address in the pop-up. You'll love it. We We do. do. Now, Hallie, what goodies have you found for us today? Straight from the Astronomy Daily Newsletter itself. We have a little story about a little asteroid for you, Steve. Oh, nice. And what about something to help astronauts from getting lost in space? Well, that's got to be a plus. I can't think of anything more terrifying. Well, I'll tell you about the Vibrotractor shortly. Vibrotractor? Are you sure you're on the right podcast? And finally, we say farewell to the man who didn't get sick. Yes, that's right. Ken Mattingly, famous for being a NASA astronaut, but also notably the one who did not get German measles. More later on that one. And, of course, a brief of November skywatching highlights to look out for. Yes, I've got some great information. And you've posted a link to a cool Artemis video. Yes, it's this really cool time-lapse video of the Artemis II booster's arrival at NASA Processing Facility. You can see how the giant sections are manipulated and assembled. And you can find that on the Space Nuts podcast group page. I just posted the link there. Uh, Just head over there and check it out. Just one thing, Steve. What's that, Hallie? Did you put that cheesy music on the video? Well, I would like to take credit for that, but no, I did not. That's a shame. It's so you. Thank you, Allie. You know me so well. Anyway, over to you. Thanks, human. And now the Astronomy Daily Newsletter short takes. Scientists have created Vibrotactors, wearable devices that help astronauts combat spatial disorientation in space. Testing has shown that these devices, coupled with specialized training, can enhance balance and orientation control. Spatial disorientation is known to be a leading cause of fatal aircraft accidents. But losing your orientation in space itself is even more dangerous. Scientists have now developed wearable devices called vibrotactors that, combined with specialized training, improve people's ability to fight spatial disorientation and could help astronauts correct themselves when their perceptions can no longer be relied upon. In leaving the Earth's surface, we lose many of the cues we need to orient ourselves, and that spatial disorientation can be deadly. Astronauts normally need intensive training to protect against it. However, scientists have now found that wearable devices that vibrate to give orientation cues may boost the efficacy of this training significantly, making spaceflight slightly safer. Long-duration spaceflight will cause many physiological and psychological stressors which will make astronauts very susceptible to spatial disorientation, said Dr. Vivekanand P. Vimal of Brandeis University in the United States.
lead author of the article in Frontiers in Physiology. When disoriented, an astronaut will no longer be able to rely on their own internal sensors which they have depended on for their whole lives. The researchers used sensory deprivation and a multi-axis rotation device to test their vibrotactors in simulated spaceflight, so the senses participants would normally rely on were useless. 30 participants were recruited, of which 10 received training to balance in the rotation device, 10 received the vibrotactors, and the remaining 10 received both. All participants were shown a video of the rotation device and told how it worked, moving like an inverted pendulum until it reached a crash boundary, unless it was stabilized by a person sitting in the device controlling it with a joystick. The participants wearing vibrotactors still performed better than those who only received training. The training-only group crashed more frequently, moved around the balance point more, and accidentally destabilized themselves more often. Receiving the training did help, though. As the trials continued, the group who received both training and vibrotactors performed best. It turns out that the asteroid Dinkanish has a dinky sidekick, a mini-moon. The discovery was made during Wednesday's flyby of Dinkanish, 480 million kilometers away in the main asteroid belt beyond Mars. The spacecraft snapped a picture of the pair when it was about 435 kilometers. In data and images beamed back to Earth, the spacecraft confirmed that Dinkanish is barely 790 meters across. Its closely circling moon is a mere 220 meters in size. NASA sent Lucy past Dinkanish as a rehearsal for the bigger, more mysterious asteroids out near Jupiter. Launched in 2021, the spacecraft will reach the first of these so-called Trojan asteroids in 2027 and explore them for at least six years. The original target list of seven asteroids now stands at 11. Dinkanish means you are marvelous in the Amharic language of Ethiopia. It's also the Amharic name for Lucy, the 3.2 million-year-old remains of a human ancestor found in Ethiopia in the 1970s, for which the spacecraft is named. Dinkanish really did live up to its name, Southwest Research Institute's Hal Levison, the lead scientist, said in a statement. It is with a sad spirit that we say farewell to astronaut Ken Mattingly. The former NASA astronaut, who in 1970 was pulled from the Apollo 13 crew due to being exposed to the rubella virus, died on Tuesday, October 31, at the age of 87. Yes, Mattingly's death was confirmed by NASA. NASA astronaut T.K. Mattingly was the key to the success of our Apollo program and his shining personality will ensure that he is remembered throughout history, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said in a statement released on Thursday. As a leader in exploratory missions, T.K. will be remembered for braving the unknown for the sake of our country's future, he said. Chosen with NASA's fifth class of astronauts in 1966, Mattingly went on to fly to the moon and then led two space shuttle missions. He logged a total of 21 days, 4 hours and 34 minutes in space, including 1 hour, 23 minutes on a spacewalk near the moon, the second deep space extravehicular activity, EVA, in history. Mattingly was apparently exposed to German measles by fellow astronaut and later Apollo 16 crewmate Charlie Duke, the only member of the original Apollo 13 not to be immune. NASA's flight doctors were concerned Mattingly would fall ill during the mission, leading to the decision that he be replaced by his backup, Jack Swigert. In 1995, the event was portrayed in the Ron Howard film 
Apollo 13. For the record, Ken Mattingly never did get the German measles. No, he didn't, and that was a really unfair thing to do, but I suppose they were just being careful. You know, you can't be locked in a tin can, as David Bowie put it, uh, with somebody with German measles. That would be very unfair to the rest of the crew. But uh, he was very helpful, Uh, so the story goes, down on Earth helping them solve a much bigger problem. Um, and uh, what a hero. Uh, no two ways about it. Ken Mattingly, Godspeed. Astronomy Daily, the podcast with Steve Dunkley and Hallie. Now let's have a look at some of the sky-watching highlights that are coming up in November this year, the Leonid Media Peak, Saturn sits in the celestial sea and Venus and Jupiter are visible on opposite sides of the sky. Now what to look for, meteors and Saturn in the sea. Bundle up and head out to dark skies overnight on uh, November 17 for the peak of the Leonid Meteors. Look for Saturn all month long in the constellation Aquarius, just one of several constellations related to water in that part of the sky. And if you're up before the Sun, you'll have an opportunity to observe Venus and Jupiter on opposite sides of the sky in the AM. And now just a few highlights. On November 9, find the crescent moon hanging just beneath Venus in the early morning sky before sunrise. November 13 is a new moon. November 17, look for a beautiful crescent moon sitting low in the southwest all by itself in the twilight following sunset. November 20, you can expect after sunset on November 20, look to the south to see the first quarter moon just below the ring planet Saturn. The pair are joined by bright stars Formalhot and Altair, my favourite. November 24, on the 24th, look for the nearly full moon close to giant Jupiter in the east after sunset. Some binoculars will be able to capture both of them in the same field of view. That'll be nice. Uh, November 17, the annual Leonid shower uh, peaks uh, overnight on that night and most meteors will be visible between midnight and dawn on the 18th. November 27th is a full moon. All month, Jupiter is at opposition this month uh, on November 3, meaning it is directly opposite the Sun from the Earth and it rises around sunset and is in the sky all night long looking big and bright. All month also, Venus rises in the couple of hours before dawn, and if you're up before the sun, you can observe Venus in the eastern sky and Jupiter in the west. All month also, Saturn sits within a region of the sky full of constellations related to water, including Aquarius, Pisces and Capricornus. And speaking of connections between water and wonder... NASA plans to launch its Europa Clipper spacecraft next autumn, or fall in, as they say in the Northern Hemisphere, to study Jupiter's icy moon Europa, which is thought to contain an ocean that might support life. And you can send your name to Europa etched on the spacecraft. Visit the link uh, that I've provided on Space Nuts uh, podcast group on Facebook, and uh, you'll be able to uh, visit the Europa Clipper page on NASA and uh, read all about it. There's actually a really lovely poem that somebody's penned uh, that I really enjoyed, actually. It's quite poetic, being a poem. 
And uh, you can uh, find the link on the uh, for the Europa Clipper message in a bottle page is what it's called on the Space Nuts podcast group that's on Facebook. So I hope you do that. I hope you go and visit that and do a bit of exploring. Maybe you would like to add your name to the uh, collection of uh, humans who have uh, already added their name to the to the list and you can send your name in a message in a bottle all the way to the other watery moon in our solar system. That sounds really quite poetic in itself, doesn't it? And that about wraps up another episode of Astronomy Daily for another Monday. Thank you so much for listening in. I'm Steve Dunkley, your host from Newcastle down under, and I'll be back again along with my digital pal Hallie, who's fun to be with, next week. Although there will be another episode on Friday with Tim Gibbs, who will be casting from the other side of our globe in England with Hallie once again. And as always, head to bites.com, that's B-I-T-E-S-Z.com, and spacenuts.io for back editions of this podcast and our parent podcast, Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson anytime. Time being relative or an illusion, lunchtime, doubly so. Thanks again for listening. Say goodnight, Hallie. Good night, Hallie. Oh dear. Bye, everyone. Bye. With your host, Steve Dunkley.